Hi, uh, welcome to this edition of the New Ideal Live podcast. Um, I'm Ankar Gatte. I'm going to be joined in a moment by my colleagues at the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook and Robert Mayhew. And our topic tonight is thinking about the U.S. presidential elections. So I'll set up a little bit of just why we're doing this, why we wanted to have this particular topic. It's we've got a lot of questions, comments, some critical comments about ARI's political commentary, political stand, in particular, as one can imagine, uh, given how close we are to the election and what is going on, uh, it surrounds the election and Trump and thinking about the Republicans and the Democrats. And wanted to talk about this head on, about how we think about this at the Institute. And in particular, some of the comments are, well, we're a, four, a 501c3 organization. We're not supposed to be involved in political. I mean, it would be put in different ways, but sometimes even put the political commentary commenting on the election it was sometimes it'll be put in various ways and usually though not always usually it's when someone doesn't quite agree with what we say then it's um should you really be saying this because you're a 501c3 sometimes it's i really agree with what you guys are saying but you're a 501c3 so should you be doing this but that's not the norm the norm is it's usually like i don't quite agree um i've not heard that one (laughs) pardon I've not heard that version of the criticism. It's- <laughs> I've got it once in a while, but it's not dominant. Um, but so I want to talk head on and at the start. We are a 501c3 organization. We don't get involved in campaigns and trying to tell people who they should vote for. We don't support a particular candidate and say, vote for him, don't vote for his opponent and so on. So we don't get involved in that. Um, but let, we'll talk a little bit about that because, on the other hand, we still do political commentary, political analysis, which includes talking about elected officials and so on. So it's we don't steer clear of the whole issue, but we're not campaigning and to talk about that distinction. So that's one of the issues I want to talk about. We don't have to spend that much time on it. The other is um, so a second issue, and, and this is sort of the order that we're going to go in this evening of topics. So talk a little bit about ARI as a 501c3 organization and what that means. Two, to, to normalize a little bit the wider phenomenon that we get critical comments, questions about issues like this, and not only political issues, it includes philosophical issues, but it's not like all the fans of Ayn Rand or even fans of ARI or however you would put it exactly, think that they agree with everything that we say or do, but here's the one issue that they don't. So I wanna talk a little bit about, like this is an ongoing issue that ARI has to navigate and, it, and this has been since its inception in the 80s. Um, but then the two biggest blocks of time on the issues that I wanna spend is thinking one about how Ayn Rand thought about the US political trends, elections, voting. She wrote a lot, at least from Kennedy as president onwards about US election, particularly presidential candidates and so on. So talk about how she thought about that because some of the critical comments are, you're not getting Ayn Rand at all right about how she thought about 
the, the political trends and elections. So talk a little bit about how we interpret what her views and, and analysis was and lessons we take from that, and then talk about today's political situation and political context and how we look at it. So those are the four topics that we're going to take. And again, to start with the 501c3 status, and I'm going to ask you, Yaron, since yeah. you've talked the most, I think, publicly about what this means and doesn't mean. Yeah. So first, I mean, we take this very seriously at the Institute. I mean, it, it is important because our, uh, our status as a not-for-profit depends on us not violating the law. And in this case, it is, it is a legal issue. We have consulted often with attorneys over the years with regard to uh, what constitutes a violation of 501c3 and what doesn't. Um, and uh, so, so for all of you who wonder, we take it seriously, we think about it, and we, we talk to lawyers uh, in addition. Basically, the idea is that as long as we're not advocating for particular candidates, advocating and rallying people around specific votes of Congress, not even about a topic. Like, for example, we can be we can be against Obamacare and we can comment on Obamacare and discuss Obamacare. But when the vote comes, it would be a violation of a 501c3 status to tell all of our contributors, uh, write your congressman, we have to defeat AB 367 or whatever the whatever the title of the bill happens to be. Uh, we, we can do that. We can explicitly come out as an organization for against any specific candidate. And, and maybe relevant to this issue is, is to understand that we can do that as individuals, right? In our, in a sense, private lives. We're not, the fact that we're employees, or in my case, chairman of the board of the Ironman Institute, does not make us, does not make it such that 24 seven, we speak for the Ironman Institute. That would be absurd. So for example, you know, I've talked about this often, and I think others have talked about my podcast is not the Ayn Rand Institute. It doesn't represent the Ayn Rand Institute. So I can say on my podcast things that I cannot say when I'm speaking for the Institute like right now, because this is a this is an Institute webinar. So we cannot advocate for specific candidates as ARI. We cannot argue for against particular bills or encourage people to uh, participate in the particular in the political process in a specified pre-specified way but we're not restricted in commenting on broad political issues certainly on even on broad political issues that are being voted on for example Obamacare um, you know Cato heritage AEI the big bookings the big uh, think tanks all do it they actually probably uh, are far more aggressive about these things than we are. It's not a big focus of us. And even with regard to particular legislation, particular candidates, there's even a provision in the budget in the law that says you can't, you can still do it a little bit. You just can't spend more than 5% of your budget or something like that about we, we try not to do it at all. Uh, so as to stay safe, but we can, we can certainly talk about policy in a broad sense, its application, its consequences, and, and what we think the policy should be. Those are all uh, completely within the realm of what a non-for-profit can do. And, and think about the think tanks that would be out of business if they couldn't do that. And I just add to your list of the examples that you gave, because you might think of some of these, there are 
nonpartisan, or at least try to be. Turning Point USA is a 501c3, and I don't think anybody right now thinks of them as nonpartisan. Um, well, and Heritage is a nonpartisan. It's yeah, clearly that's, Republican yeah. And, yeah. and so on. And Bookings is clearly on the left. So mm-hmm. while they call themselves that, uh, yeah. And, and But think about it. Cato actually, and all of these think tanks, have actually been involved in writing legislation. That is, they, they work with congressmen, they work with senators on actual language in the legislation, they testify before Congress, they do things. Uh, so there's a wide array of, of what is allowable within the 501c3 uh, designation. Uh, okay, Robert, anything you want to No, I don't have really anything to add uh, um. to that. Okay, so that's good. And I should say, we're going to try to leave at least, I mean, we're going to go for two hours, likely. We'll try to leave at least half an hour for questions, though if there's any questions that are coming that are really directly on what we're talking about, we might take them earlier, but there'll be time for questions, certainly, so you can ask more about that. Okay, so that's one about ARIs of 501c3 organization. Now, the the second issue that I wanted to talk a little bit about, again, not spend that much time on it, but the it, it, which is that um, we regularly get comments from our supporters, from fans of Ayn Rand, uh, that are critical. Some it's constructive criticism, some it's not that constructive criticism. And I, I want to, uh, here's a, some issues on which we've got critical comment. And I part of what I want to get clear or get get on the table is that it really ranges a lot, the critical comments that we get. It, as I say, they're often intertwined with political issues, but not always. And I think there's a tendency for when we get critical comments to think, the, the, sort of the fans, and so, to think everybody probably agrees with the criticism, but often we get criticisms that pull in different directions. So even on Trump, we get people who you're too hard on Trump, you don't understand Trump, but we get people and more than one who's, you're not aggressive enough in criticizing Trump. And he's like, this guy's a total disaster and you should have weekly commentary on this and you only have a few things and so so, And that's almost on every issue. It's to take some of the other political issues, I mean, a long-standing one for, since ARI's existence is how ARI relates to libertarians, including the Libertarian Party. And again, there's criticism from, why are you talking to this person dealing with this organization? Why were you at a Cato event? So, and so that's the, the, you shouldn't deal with them at all. You should be completely hands-off. And the other criticism is like, these are your natural allies. Why aren't you talking to them every week and doing all kinds of events with them? And so, and for, I mean, you could multiply the examples and we could talk about a few others, but, but the way I think about it is look for all these kinds of issues, we have to make judgments about it. And they're not easy judgments. They take a lot of um, reflection on, on the issues what we think about the issues. And 
it's natural that there's going to be disagreements about them. So it's not, or it's really surprising that not everybody agrees 100%. And sometimes I think the disagreement is, yeah, I can understand why the person has a different view. And sometimes I think, no, they really don't understand either the particular organization that we're dealing with or not dealing with, or the principles involved in, in thinking about should one deal with the organization or not to take the kind of libertarian issue. Um, and it, it's like, this is inherent to intellectual issues, but if you guys want to weigh in, partly how you think about this. Yeah, I think one important distinction to make is um, who are you disagreeing with? Because that's going to be an important part. For example, I've heard criticisms. Um, I don't like the stand you take on abortion. Well, that's not a disagreement with our interpretation or application of, of Ayn Rand. It's you disagree with Ayn Rand on that point, and then you can't expect ARI, which is doing its best to, to understand and, and teach and, 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 and have commentary that's up to date but is applying her principles, to abandon that. It's not going to happen. Um, so a lot of the issues, uh, I think, are really, some of them are quite difficult uh, libertarianism has evolved in certain ways. Should we deal with this organization or that? What about the, the party? But um, dealing with David Kelly's, or, uh, to me, that's a no-brainer. I mean, there's, there's going to be, um, uh, not all disagreements are going to be to be the same, but I think that one of the first things to, and this is going to apply to evaluating elections too, is who exactly are you disagreeing? And if, if you're disagreeing with Ayn Rand, that has to be articulated uh, in your disagreement. Yeah, and I think, I think there's this idea that it's hard is important. That is, and, and I've given, I, I gave a talk years ago on, on applying objectivism is hard. Philosophy doesn't give you as a direct deduction what you should think about this or that candidate or what, should, what you should think about this or that event uh, or, or how to respond to 9-11 or what to do about Salman Rushdie or any of these things. It doesn't give you just it's not like a computer. You plop the, the, a few of the facts in and bam, the right answer comes out to apply abstract ideas to particular concretes is is difficult. And and sometimes we might somebody might end up disagreeing with Ayn Rand. And that's fine. Right. You know, it's 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 you have to recognize that who you're disagreeing with is Ayn Rand. But it you know, that can lead you to disagree with Ayn Rand at the end of the day. Rand and all of us want you to be first-handed, want you to figure out, based on these philosophical ideas, how to live your life and what your views are on particular issues. So the same for us. I mean, we're going to come up with, with, uh, with our conclusions about these things. Uh, we have robust discussions, have had robust discussions within the Institute about every one of these, uh, these stands. And then we often find ourselves in disagreement with with objectivists outside, with other objectivist intellectuals, with uh, with with some of our supporters and donors. And this goes back decades. It it, it goes back, you know. It, it, for me, I mean, it became real after nine eleven when we took a, a strong stance uh, on on specifics regarding nine eleven, together with Leonard Peikoff. Um, but there were a lot of supporters, donors, uh, even some intellectuals who were associated with the, with the objectivist movement, who disagreed. And, uh, and we were very critical of Bush. I mean, I mean, unbelievably critical of Bush for years and years and years. And many, many supporters of the Ayn Rand Institute were in disagreement with us. They were supportive of Bush. And 
Um, and then even within the board, there would, you know, I, I remember, I remember I gave a talk 2004 or five. And at the end of the talk, I basically said, if we're not going to fight the one Iraq properly, we should get up. We should just leave, just leave Iraq. And Peter Schwartz ran up to me right afterwards. And like, how could you say that? That's, you know, and, and we disagreed, you know, and, and it's natural because these are complicated issues. They are, and it's not like we are in a position of making decisions about them. Uh, it's, but, but we, you know, there's going to be robust disagreement about the particulars. Now, as I think Robert said, there's certain issues where it's in a, you know, if you're an objectivist, then it's inappropriate to disagree. Or if you disagree, then you have to understand that you're disagreeing with objectivism. And this, this relates to the Kelly issue, right? Objectivism is not an open system in the sense that anything you decide that's true is part of objectivism. Objectivism is Ayn Rand's ideas as articulated by her primarily and by, by Leonard and Opa, but and, and Ominous Palos, but that's pretty much it. And if, uh, so, so, so if you disagree with something within the philosophy, if you disagree with Ayn Rand, and then you go and argue that, no, that's objectivism, then it's going to become unpleasant, <laughs> you know, as it did with David Kelly. Then, then we're going to say, no, in a sense, you're a fraud. You're trying to sell off your ideas as objectivism when objectivism is clearly not that. So those kind of disagreements are one level. Disagreements about philosophy, which are possible, another level. And then there's disagreements about deprecation, which are, again, on a, on a different level. And, um, and it's important to differentiate between those. And... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and another uh, kind of disagreement or, or what can engender disagreements is um, how important is a certain principle of Ayn Rand? So I've met objectivists who agree uh, with Ayn Rand on the issue of abortion again, um, but they don't think it has the status that she gave it in evaluating um, uh, presidential candidates. I mean, she said flat out with respect to Reagan uh, that if you're an, um, if you deny a woman a right to abortion. You don't understand individual rights. You're not a defender of individual rights, period. And I think I'm quoting the period. Um, now, I've met who say, yeah, I'm against it. I wish, you know, but that's not going to be a deciding factor for me. And, and so where you place these things in your hierarchy of evaluation is, is going to uh, be the root of, 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 of disagreements among objectivists, I think. Or at least I've seen that, so it's not, I think. Yeah. And it, I think it, this, so I agree with the, I forget what your three levels were you're on, but something about if you disagree with- Passing off your knowledge as objectivism when it's not, you disagree about philosophy, you know, that, that can happen, and you disagree about application. Um, you can make those distinctions and they're important to make, I think, to, to, but often what happens in a disagreement, I think, is- you think it's just a disagreement about issue of application. Yep. And it turns out, no, it's a disagreement more at a philosophical level. And then even a disagreement about, no, objectivism is something different. And for the Institute, what we're, it matters where we think the disagreement lies. So David Kelly, the, I mean, you put it that we view it as a fraud, but at one level, you can think it was a disagreement about an issue of application about libertarians and who should you deal with. 
But it became clear in the articulation of, well, no, this is how I, David writing, David Kelly writing, this is how I approach the issue. And Leonard writing, well, yeah, but this is what objectivism says, that it wasn't just in disagreement at the issue of application. It was a philosophical disagreement. And then it even became, no, objectivism's open. You can add to it and even rewrite it, modify it. And the perspective, no, it's objectivism is the name, a proper name of her philosophy. So that, and that's when it becomes fraudulent, when you're trying to pass off your philosophical views as Ayn Rand's. That is, there's something fraudulent about that. So it's, you can make these distinctions, but often in a conflict, what it ends up is, yeah, no, it's, it's, there's a lot of disagreement. The disagreement's wider than you think it is. And I would think abortion is like this often, that it's, they're not getting clearly why Ayn Rand has the position that she has. So they know, yeah, she has a much stronger position than I, but they don't get why her position is like that. Um, and I think the more you get, yeah, these are reasons for it, the more it's, yeah, is there really, the, so you can have a very different view about the application here. Right. And I think um, more broadly, a lot of the disagreements we're seeing uh, nowadays around the election are come down to disagreements about, or misunderstanding, I would say, about about objectivism's political philosophy, its relationship to conservatism. Um, I, I think there's a real uh, disagreement among people or misunderstanding on the part of some people of just how different they are. And I think that's what um, that's what's behind a lot of uh, of the disagreements here. People who think we're we're closer to that camp and, and others who... Well, I think, uh, I think conservatives who get attracted to Ayn Rand and think that they're objectivists and, you know, sometimes in times of stress, their conservatism comes out and, and you realize maybe they're not objectivists, maybe they're more conservatives. But I, I think there's one other element to this disagreement. While I'm very sympathetic to the disagreements, very sympathetic to people coming to different conclusions, I think people also need to be objective be objective about what they know in philosophy, be objective about what they know about the world and have some at least respect for expertise. And it doesn't mean you have to follow the expert. It doesn't mean you have to accept what the expert says, but politics, I mean, social media makes it seem like everybody's an expert in politics. Everybody's an expert in philosophy. Everybody's an expert in everything. And that's just not true. If, if it turns out that I disagree with somebody I respect uh, and agree with 99% of the time, what it causes me to say is, wait a minute, why am I disagreeing with him? Maybe I'm wrong. That doesn't mean I am wrong. It doesn't mean I'm going to change my mind, but at least it causes me to reflect. And I see so many people so certain of what they know when they have really no basis for their certainty because they don't have the knowledge, either philosophical or in a concrete matter, to have such a strong opinion and to be so nasty about it, if you will. Um, let me make one, introduce one last aspect of this that we can talk about and then we'll um, move on to the next topic. But that's, so you brought up 9-11, Yaron. I think it's an interesting case yeah. and it's not different than abortion or libertarianism. Ayn Rand talked about both of these things. She obviously couldn't talk about 9-11. Um, 
And yet we viewed it at ARI as this is an enormously significant event that we have to spend a lot of time talking about and we have to develop a position on. So, and we put a lot of thought into developing the positions. And thinking of ARI as an organization, it's and that we, we have conferences, we have people speaking for us at different events. And it wasn't as though we sort of laid down some law. This is at any conference or talk. And if someone asks about this, this is what you need to say and something like that. But on the other hand, we thought, look, this takes a lot of philosophical thinking. And to view this issue from an objectivist perspective, not to um, either succumbing to the liberal kind of view about what is going on about and how to think about Islam, but not to think also the conservative. You brought this up about, Robert, that, I mean, objectivism is not anything like conservatism. And the more we think of someone as, no, they're really approaching it like that, the more circumspect we are about, okay, can they speak on this issue at ARI events? And this is with Robert Trzinski. I mean, this was one of the issues. He was a writer for ARI um, and for a period of time. And there was growing disagreement about 9-11, how to think about it, how to think about the Republicans, how to think about Bush. And at some point, and I think it was mutual, it was some point we disagree so much, and, and it's not just a complex issue of application. It's actually at the level of what are the principles that it is. It doesn't make any more sense for you to be speaking for ARI anymore because it, we don't think it, this is at all how to approach the issue. Um, and that, I mean, that is, again, inherent, I think, to what ARI as an organization does. Can I say one more thing about we have to constantly evaluate our speakers, intellectuals we work with uh and and it, it, you know that in and of itself is hard and we have to make the calls uh, in terms of when is a disagreement so significant that we, we're not going to work together and when is it you know not a not as big of a deal and therefore uh you know we can work together and we do that with other organizations other intellectuals and other objectivists as well um and one other point uh I mean, to make it real how difficult issues can be. I mean, Ayn Rand at one point was asked about gun control. And I think her response was something like, that's a difficult issue. On the one hand, on the other, you know, on the one hand, this is something that's for killing. On the other hand, you have to have a right to self. So she saw that this was, this required an investment, uh, uh, you know, in in time and in, in research and thinking about the issue. And she hadn't done it. And I don't think was terribly interested in doing it. She didn't regard it as a, as a really central issue, and that itself might be a basis of a disagreement here. Uh, one other thing, um, I think someone in the chat is uh, concerned that we're not talking about elections. I will make one point uh, in connection with disagreement. Um, Iran was aware that uh, an election was something really important, and her audience wasn't, when she was speaking to objectivists, she treated us as or them, I wasn't kind of around when she was talking about these things, uh, as respectful adults uh, about to make a very important decision. So if you look, um, she'll talk about, um, uh, she had one publication called A Suggestion, which seems you know very polite uh, about uh, uh, an election. Uh, at another point, uh, when she's discussing the 1968 election between Hubert Humphrey and Nixon, she says something about the fact that if you know, if you understand Humphrey, it should be obvious 
that you should vote for Nixon or abstain. So she's aware that these are complicated issues. People are coming from them from different backgrounds and that there might be a, you know, a real basis for disagreement among decent, good people about what to do at, in that particular election. Um, I don't know what she'd say about this one. Well, I think I know. <laughs> well, I was being polite. Okay, so let's turn to that issue, though. I'll just say, I mean, we were talking about 9-11. If you don't think your analysis of 9-11 should impact how you think about the elections from 2004 to 2008. So it's, I mean, this is part of what should go into thinking about the candidates who actually represents my view or part of my view and so on. But let's turn now directly to the issue of the way, the way that, each of us interpret Ayn Rand's thinking about as the elections. As I said at the outset, she spent a lot of time writing about the issues, at least from Kennedy on, thinking about the administrations, thinking about elections, um, and, and, and their meaning for the direction of the culture. So she didn't think they were the cause of the direction, but they tell you something and they can be a contributory cause. Uh, so let's turn to that. And then we'll, the last issue is then to bring it up to the present and how we think about it. But I think it's worth spending some time on the, how we interpret Ayn Rand's approach to, to these issues. One thing I'd like to mention, only because I've been surprised at how little um, discussion there is uh, about abstaining from voting. And that, that, I mean, and my approach, and since I've abstained on presidential elections more than I've done anything else, I've taken it very seriously. And, and I've, I gave a lot of thought when I heard her give the Q&A, and, I, and, in one, and it's published as well in one of the later works where she talks about um, that abstaining from, from voting is a, itself a kind of voting. You're choosing none of the above. And she speaks to the principle of that there are limits to, um, the limits to, uh, um, the, what am I, yeah, lesser of two evils. Yeah. And uh, that there has to be something, something positive there, even if it is an evil, uh, right? Uh, there has to be something positive, something of value. And if you, if you don't have that, you ought not to vote. And I never see it, and uh, or I rarely have, and so I usually uh, abstain in presidential elections, and I will this time. I don't know if I'm giving anything away, uh, but that's I think a, a something that people ought to seriously consider. Um, I mean, I've seen discussions. Well, I don't know if I could vote for either of these two. Maybe I'll vote for the Libertarian, or maybe this. Yeah, um, this is a possible. This is one that you should ought to you ought to consider, and. Um, and part of the reason is that, uh, for me, it's almost an aesthetic choice or a, a, a sanction issue. I could not see myself doing a calculus and figure, okay, I'd rather this guy win. I mean, I have a preference for who I'd like to see win, but I couldn't for the life of me uh, vote for someone because it is, you're, it's a stamp of approval, even if it's a very, you know, the impression is very slight. And so, um, and I think that's something that people need to, to consider more. Uh, at least in, in my discussions with people. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree completely with that. Um, but if you if we go back to 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 Ayn Rand and her commentary, 
I mean, she spends, I mean, she writes a lot about presidents and about what they're doing and, and what it represents and what it signifies, both about them and the philosophy that animates them or the lack of one, um, and about the culture which tolerates what they're doing and, and where this would help, where, where this will, will, will lead to. She also talks a lot about the long-term consequences of both presidential actions and the outcomes of particular elections. So she's always thinking about down the road. And, and in particular, if you think about Reagan and you think about her opposition to voting for Reagan, in, uh, particularly in 1980, when, uh, when it was a clear choice between him and Jimmy Carter, I mean, that should, be, that should be pretty simple, right? But she sees the long-term consequences, and I think we're actually living them right now, the long-term consequences of Reagan winning. And the long-term consequences in that case were bringing the moral majority, bringing religion, bringing evangelical Christianity into the heart of the Republican Party and allowing it to define who the Republican Party is. And then she's saying, if that's the Republican Party, then, then that's destroyed that party. And we know where the Democrats are, so it leaves nothing, right? And so the only hope to save the Republican Party, in a sense, is to reject Ronald Reagan, to reject, and, and by doing that, reject the, 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 the religious right. So she's always thinking ahead. She's thinking strategically, what's, this, what's the result going to be uh, culturally for the country and, and for, the, for the politics of it. So she's, she's constantly, you know, it's, it's it, Ankar's right. It, it, politics is shaped by the culture. But she recognized that politics also shapes the culture. And I think, I think we could definitely talk about how Donald Trump in particular has shaped the culture, or even how Obama shaped the culture to make Donald Trump possible. Um, but there's definitely a, it goes in both directions. It's not just one, one way. And she was worried about that um, very early on. There's a letter to Barry Goldwater from 1960 yeah. where she says something like, what the communists have done to the liberals the religionists, and I think she even uses an odd expression like the professional religionists are doing to the conservatives. And I take that to mean bringing them in a bad direction, uh, kind of the logical consequences of them. And that was 1960. She was, this was, you know, she's trying to make Goldwater better. Um, and she saw what was going to happen or what could happen if it wasn't resisted. And, um, and she got Reagan. I mean, in a way, well, she, she had to live through that. Yeah, so I think it's worth talking more about how she thought about both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party over time. Um, it's worth saying on the conservatism issue, I mean, her major article on this conservatism, an obituary, brings this up explicitly, that tying their, the supposed advocacy of some element of freedom of individual rights and capitalism, tying it to faith and to religion is worse than saying nothing. So, and this is often in her writings that a bad mm -hmm. argument is worse than saying nothing because it makes it seem like reasons on the other side. So if all you have to say for freedom and capitalism is, well, it's in the Bible or some variant of that, then it's we want to go by reason and science, so I guess we need some other system if that's what we're going to do. And it strengthens the opposing and evil side. And I think that is, she comments about that often and not just 
sort of the dynamic between Republicans and Democrats, but this of defenders of freedom. I mean, she was really, really critical of John Stuart Mill. And in some ways, I think you can think of him and he's trying to defend freedom of speech and so on. But she thinks the argument's so bad that you make the other side look good. Because it's this is the best argument for the good side. So let's try something else. Um, I want to say something on the issue of what you brought up at the start, Robert, about abstaining and looking for a positive value. Part of the way that I think about it, but I think what she's emphasizing is we're in a representative form of government. So you talked about it as a sanction and you are in choosing to vote for someone. I think you're saying this person represents me. Now, she writes in a two-party system, it can't be that if you vote for someone, that means all his views represent all your views and so on. But it's still a representative form of government. And if you really think, no, this person doesn't represent anything of what I stand for. It's just, he's not as bad as who the other person is. You have to really think, is it proper to vote for him? And I think this is part of the issue of that she says there's limits to the lesser of two evils. And it's particular when one's thinking about election, where it's, you're saying something positive, that this person represents some of my views. That you can't back away from that and say, no, that's not what my vote means. That's what a vote means in a representative system of government. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons to, to, that you have to, it has to be a live option that I'm going to abstain. And of course, her viewers, that because it's representation, represent, <laughs> representative government, the president does represent you. And that's why it's important to have an opinion. That is, even if you abstain, it's important to know what the issues are. It's important to know who the good guys or the bad guys or that everybody's a bad guy. It's important to know what's going on. It's important to be involved and to care because whether you like it or not, they represent you and their actions affect you, right? Their actions are, you know, are going to have a profound impact or potentially a profound impact on your life. So it's important to be engaged in the political process even though I think she would be horrified by how obsessed people are with the political process today. I mean, everything is politicized. It's constant. People talk about not, almost nothing else. Um, but uh, Well, she says that's true every, uh, every four years. Uh, what are the, how does she put that? Um, uh, yeah, she said there's, there's kind of, on the one hand, um, Oh, I can't find the issue. Um, I know what you mean, though. She said something like, on the one hand, people dismiss elections. They're not important. I don't need to pay attention. Or the other side is the whole nation hinges on what happens on November right. or 2nd. If Hillary's elected, then, you know, that, that's so. Uh, yeah, there's 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 a lot of that. Could I um, I wanted to say one more thing about well, maybe more than one thing about conservatives or we're going to return. to well, Yeah, that's I thought we should talk a little bit. I mean, she was, uh, I forget who of you brought up Goldwater, but she was supported Goldwater's run for the president. She wrote a fair amount about it, but she also wrote about what, why he lost and lost a landslide against him and lessons to draw from that, uh, that I think in terms of thinking of the trajectory of the Republican party that she go and she goes from supporting Goldwater to being adamant against Reagan. It's worth talking a little bit about that 
trajectory. And, and I was going to go back even further because it's not as if she was a conservative for a long time and then got disgusted with Reagan or something like that. Um, if you go back, she worked for the Wendell Wilkie campaign in 1940, I think. And she's, she said somewhere, I think it's in the biographical interviews maybe, that um, his compromise, that he, he started out as this uh, opponent of the New Deal and then he became a compromiser, and he was worse than Roosevelt for that. I mean, guiltier, she says. So she was disgusted with, and she talks not just about Wilkie, but the people around him in the Republican Party. And these are conservatives, and they're, they're middle of the road. They're, they're not being principled. There's some better ones, but not enough of them, and they're not the ones who really matter in the party. When she was, um, did, you know, she became involved in the anti-communism and HUEC and all that. And same thing. She was disgusted with the, with the um, conservatives because they wanted to attack people rather than you know, deal with ideas. She, um, she's really negative about Eisenhower. And she, she didn't like Taft. That was the son of the President Taft. Who she ran didn't for, vote for Eisenhower, right? She didn't vote in those she elections. She didn't vote for him. But he was, uh, she, she regarded the, I think it's the 52 um, election where the Republican was um, Robert Taft and Eisenhower, and the Republicans they gave it to Eisenhower, who was pro. Uh, we need the welfare state. We're you know we're, we're so far on because that's a conservative, right? You accept what happened last generation, and where Taft, who she didn't like uh, all that much. I mean, he'd be a giant now, but um, she. Uh, she thought he was clearly a better opponent, and then the the Republicans, and she was even annoyed at people like Hazlitt and and some of these others who were around for not being negative enough. So, so her dissatisfaction with the conservatives, um, you know, you have a life before you have an obituary, and I mean, it went way back. Uh, and she saw she's a Cassandra in a way. She saw. Um, what 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 happened with the Republican Party? And um, I mean, I think putting everything else aside, she might have rejected Trump merely for his choice of VP, uh, because that was doing exactly what Reagan did. Reagan wasn't terribly religious. I remember Jesse Jackson criticizing him for being not really religious, so it's all hypocritical. But he unleashed uh, into the culture the moral majority. Uh, made of abortion a real a, a serious issue again. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, I wanted a, a, a trajectory with the conservatives because I think there was this idea that um, clearly she thought the liberals were over here and the conservatives are here. You know, they got this little issue with religion, and I don't think it's that way at all. Uh, but what's interesting about her is that she learned this from experience. That is. She chose to engage. She engaged in politics. She worked in campaigns. She engaged in intellectual cooperation with free market, other free marketers. And she repeatedly was disappointed by their lack of principle, by the fact that they were not consistent, the, the, the fact that they constantly compromised. And so she gained many of these opinions about conservatives from real experience in dealing with them and in, in interacting with them. And it wasn't that she was always on the sidelines and just, just you know, complaining from the sidelines or criticizing from the sidelines. She tried to engage and saw from the inside how corrupt they really were. And, uh, and it, it made, I think it made her critique so much more powerful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Goldwater, that she thought that he's someone who's articulating 
principles that are pro-freedom, pro-capitalism. She doesn't think that he's an advocate of laissez-faire capitalism, but as on the political scene of the 60s, that he was unusual in that he seemed principled. She was very cautious even early on about, can you really have a campaign like this where you simultaneously have to campaign and educate the public about what these principles actually mean? So it's very difficult. It's not clear Goldwater is up to the task. But even with all those caveats, she was disappointed to say the least in Goldwater. And one of her um, comments about it is that he had this chance where he could talk to the country about some crucial issues and frame them on as matters of principle and that the campaign disintegrated into he has nothing to say. And that was one of the, he, he had literally nothing to say, um, is sort of shop-worn, um, hackneyed, uh, like, I don't know what the right adjective is, but it, it's sort of the precursor of bringing in, oh, it's all about family and that, that, that's all you need is love. It kind of, it's so unintellectual. But that's so typical of conservatives. They can quote the Constitution. They can even, you know, the better ones can even talk about individual rights without defining them, without really explaining them. They can, they can say they're pro-capitalism. But as soon as it gets to any real application, as soon as it gets to any real issue, their altruism, their collectivism immediately comes forward and, and all the principles that they articulated, you know, are gone. They, they disappear. And then, yeah, when, when they're actually in front of voters, they, they're going to talk more about, you know, the stuff that, that the non-intellectual stuff that appeals to, to the voters. And, and I, think, I think what happened with Goldwater is I think he did have an opportunity. I mean, he was, I mean, she really despised Kennedy primarily because of how, what a pragmatist he was. He didn't believe in anything. He didn't stand for anything. He was unprincipled, although in comparison to what's going on today, he seems like the paragon of, 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 uh, of virtue. But I mean, she calls him a, I mean, she, she argues that he's leading the country towards fascism and and it, I mean, again, if you compare to anything today and you think you think she just sit by and, and you know, when she would you were so negative on Kennedy. And then and then by contrast, here's Goldwater, who at least says in part of parts of his speech as principal things that are consistent with 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 America. Um, it, it was night and day in many respects. And you can understand why she was enthusiastic. But she also was cautious because he knew she knew religion was in the background. She knew that yes, that when he's pushed, he immediately reverts to these to these uh, uh, you know to these non-essentials and unprincipled positions. And it, it, it turned out to be a tragedy because he he lost. He didn't just lose. He lost in a landslide, which basically taught the Republican Party don't go even with the people who have a little bit of principle, right? go with a complete pragmatist. And it's not an accident at all that the next candidate the Republicans put up is is uh, is Nixon, the, the ultimate Republican uh, pragmatist. You know, principles don't matter. Principles don't count. Uh, and uh, and and I think it I think that was the beginning of the end. And I think she viewed it as the beginning of the end of the of whatever good there was in the Republican Party was gone after that. Whatever good there might have been in conservatism was gone after that.
Have you have you ever seen the map of what states um, went with Goldwater? Um, it's Arizona, his own state, and then the South, and that's. I mean, she once re- referred to the Rep- the Republican Part- National Committee or the Republican ha- uh, handlers as an evil that we can't seem to shake, or something like that. Because I think there, I think that might have been in in connection with Ford becoming just a non-entity against Carter and and losing. Um, but what they picked up from, I think uh, Ankur has talked about this in a lecture, right, where uh, it was the Southern uh, Christians. And so some bright uh, Republican got the idea. This is how we win elections. We, um, we get the, uh, the Christian vote. Uh, and they didn't get in. Well, 68 wasn't really an issue. But after uh, once Reagan came along in 76, uh, it, it was big. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, so we've been talking more on the Republican side, though, Ron, you brought up Kennedy and that she yep. was yep. very negative of Kennedy, that she, as you said, she saw him as this is burgeoning fascism. And it's the it's that he's anti-ideology, that he's trying to put an end to ideological debate in the country. And I think this is also that the failing of Goldwater is that he could raise ideological issues and it seemed like he was, and then he completely retreated from that. Um, So now it's both sides of anti-ideology in a certain way, or have given up at least on ideology. I mean, she was critical of LBJ. And then it's, she's critical of Nixon, but in the Nixon McGovern um, election, election, she, she says McGovern is so bad and so bad here means He's a representative of the new left. He's the candidate they want. This is his source of power, of any moral fervor behind his campaign. This is it. And that it's the first explicit um, time that statism as statism, like give government incredible power, expropriate uh, expropriate wealth, comes on sort of the political platform. And she thinks in that context, she, she said, yeah, no, Nixon's really bad, but this was a case of given what the, how bad or how evil the alternative is, you have to vote for Nixon. And she came out that you should vote for Nixon. But I think this is important because in terms of the trajectory into to when you get to Reagan and her attitude towards Reagan, I think it's important to get that this is what she thought about McGovern and that she was, I mean, you guys can talk about this a little more. She was very positive that McGovern lost in a landslide, that it was a landslide against him. And she starts using the term swing to the right. And I think she thinks there's a tremendous opportunity that Reagan completely betrays. And But we can talk about that second amount. But let's talk a little bit about the McGovern-Nixon. But it's even the case that the McGovern loss swung the Democratic Party to the right. Um, and I think I think that's important. And it's why she could, in a sense, afford not to vote for Reagan, because as bad as Jimmy Carter was, he wasn't a representative of the new left. He wasn't an all-out status, in a sense, the McGovern was. She might have been pro-Reagan if, if I don't know this, if it was against McGovern, if it was against a McGovern like She actually said that. She actually said that the only reason you could vote for Reagan is if the Democrats run someone like McGovern again. Yeah, and, and, and they didn't. And the reason they didn't, the reason uh, uh, I almost said Clinton, because Clinton's the same kind of candidate, it's because these uh, the Democratic Party swung to the right after McGovern. 
his defeat in a landslide actually changed the dynamics within the Democratic Party. And, uh, and Jimmy Carter and later on Bill Clinton. And I'd say to this day, the presidential candidates that the Democratic Party has put, put forward, I can't think of anyone who really represented the, the kind of the McGovern winning of the Democratic Party. None of them, including Biden, um, is a new left. They're, they're all marginally more statist every round, but, but that's just the direction of history. But none of them are the, the completely far left which she considered the far left and the new left that McGovern represented, which she thought would unquestionably destroy this country. And, and you could bring it to date and you can say, yeah, you can see McGovern-like elements within the Democratic Party. They're, they're pretty strong. They're probably, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty strong today. It's surprising it's their candidate who is not representing the Democratic Party right now, but they are strong there. Um, but they still haven't taken over that party any more than they, you know, they did in 72 and they haven't since. So that defeat of McGovern and arguing for, I mean, turns out to be, you know, really, really important in, I think, the modern history of the United States. I think it was crucial uh, for the preservation of, of, uh, of this country, whatever elements of freedom that we have. And, uh, and she was right on the money, as she, as she almost always was. I think, and it's important, I think, to go back to 68, and which was, in a way, the, the, the Democratic um, convention in Chicago, that was a big event where, you know, you had the, 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 the hippies, you know, the, the, the protests, you had this movement, the new left, with the Black Panthers and all these elements, and they had people in the party that supported them, and uh, I think the, the younger people were hoping that they would become the candidate <clears throat> sorry, of the Democratic Party. What they got was Hubert Humphrey, which is the Biden of the time. I think he's the analog of Biden uh, because he he was a milquetoast, nothing, a cipher, a non-entity, and he puts his foot in his mouth every time he spoke. Whereas um, 72, that's what they got. The, this was the culmination of the new left, the student revolution, all that communist uh, BS, uh, I mean, to the extent that it could, could appear in America, they got McGovern. And McGovern won Massachusetts and D.C. I mean, it was a real, uh, I mean, it was, uh, she, you know, good morning, America. I, I forgot what, how she put it when she gave the, the talk after that election. She was very pleased because this was a definite no, and a no not only from the Republicans, but from, as your own pointed out, the, the, the uh, Democrats. And so I think if you're going to use the analogy, which I hear every four years, um, uh, Ayn Rand said that if there were an organization called Anti-Nixonites for Nixon, she would join that organization. You can't just say every time a Republican who's really creepy runs against a Democrat that that principle applies. It applies, you would have to have, I think it would work if you had Bernie Sanders. If you had, well, put it, Bernie Sanders versus Mitt Romney or, or you know, what, one of the regular Republicans, we can talk about Trump later, then I think that would be perfectly, it would be the same kind of thing because I think Bernie Sanders represents that. In fact, he's supposed to be progressive. He's your grandfather's socialist. And, but that's a different kind of, kind of candidate. But it's not the case that Hillary Clinton was not as awful, and I think she's closer to Nixon than she was to, to McGovern. Um, 
I mean, think about how case of every Democrat. Yeah. Think about how bad Nixon was. I mean, most of many of the alphabet agencies we have today were Nixon's. Uh, he did price he, he, he price controls. Price he went off the gold standard. Um, I mean, the, the, China. Yeah, I mean, the amount of bad stuff that Nixon did is hard to imagine any president doing in terms of in terms of and. But the alternative was so despicable, so bad. Right. That that uh, at that point there was no there was no alternative there was no choice and ideologically bad. Yes, it was an ideology. Nixon was just a pragmatist. He didn't know what he was doing with price controls. I mean, he had no clue what he was doing with going off the gold standard. And I think it was all shots in the dark. It was all pragmatism. It was all trying to fix problems. Whereas McGovern was an ideologue with a specific, clear ideology, and and uh, just a, a parallel to today. I think that if Biden loses, I think it will be like 68. I think the next candidate the Democrats put up is going to be a far left candidate because Hillary lost, who's a, considered a centrist. Biden loses a centrist. Now the left, the far left has every reason to say, you know, we've tried being moderate. Let's go all out. And, and somebody like, well, it won't be AOC, but somebody of AOC's caliber yeah, uh, becomes the candidate. I, like, I, I have a different view of that. I think it, we're likely going to get a further further towards socialism candidate ex- sort of explicitly, regardless of Biden wins or loses. But let's we're going to come to the present yep. and some of these comparisons. But I want to get one last, well, two last things about sort of Ayn Rand's views. So on this anti-Nixonites for Nixon, the first part is really important that she's anti-Nixon and articulates all what's evil about it. Not, he's pretty good, da-da-da. It's, he's evil. Long Um, essays on how bad he is. I mean, long discussions about how bad he is. And I don't think you can credibly hold that position unless, like, it just seems like, oh, yeah, okay, that's your position. But you're really pro-Nixon. You really have to articulate what is wrong with him and then say, but I still think you should vote for him, which is what she did. And she became even more negative than Nixon after he was elected. I've seen some people bring up, well, he might be good on the Supreme Court. And she did say that on nominees. But then she said, he's not. It turns out he wasn't even good on this um, when, when you get the things about censorship, the cases. So it's but she's it's clear she's anti-Nixon. So that's one. But I want to talk. The, so the last thing in terms of thinking of the trajectory, I think so it's the, with the landslide against McGovern and the rejection of the new left candidate when it's presented as he's the representative of the new left. She thought that this puts the new left on the retreat. And the swing to the right is in the country is a kind of um, the American spirit exerting itself. And if this is what the Democrats are about, we don't want this. And so there's a tremendous opportunity on the side of the right. And the only way they're going to lose it is if they screw it up, not the new left's going to become super attractive and Americans are going to move. So you could have had take a comparison so to make it not unrealistic. You could have had a Margaret Thatcher 
who doesn't cozy up to religion and so on. And I think she would have supported that. But here you have the swing to the right. And what you get immediately is the tying of of, uh, supposedly pro-freedom, pro-capitalism, fiscally responsible, strong foreign policy. All of it is grounded. What what is our argument? It's grounded in religion and faith. And And there's no greater way to hand the power back to the new left than to to do that. I think so when she's talking longer term, this is going to be a disaster. I think part of the disaster is you're going to discredit the swing to the right. And then if you get a swing back to the left, don't be so surprised. Uh, so, sort of the new left elements. And I think that's what we're living through now. It's um, w- when you think of Clinton, they're so on the defensive. They won't even use the term liberal. That's become mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. And it's the era of big government is over and so on. And what revives it? It's the worst in bankruptcy on the right. So like Goldwater's bankrupt. He has nothing to say. Reagan has something to say, sort of at, at a philosophical level, and it's all bad. Yes. I mean, even though Goldwater attributes his defense of capitalism to religion, it's not, it's not central to his campaign at all. It's, it's when he's forced to defend it, all he can do is go to religion. With Reagan, it is front and center. He is courting and, courting. and clearly going after the, the new evangelical voters uh, and, and trying to appease them and appeal to them and bring them in, not just to vote for him, but bring them into the Republican Party, to leadership positions, to a part of the institution. And and that's what has this long this 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 long term effect, um, but yeah, I mean, she saw it. She saw it not just in terms of the right getting worse, but she saw it in terms of the resurrection of the of the left. Because to a large extent, the new left, you know, seemingly at least, had disappeared certainly as a political force by uh, by the mid nineteen eighties and and into the nineties. And you saw that here. You saw it in the UK, right? The the the, the UK. You got the same. You got the same thing. You had a swing to the right. The left became. I mean, um, in the Labour Party agenda in the '90s, they took out any effort reference to anything that might be perceived as Marxist because they were so. And it's only the failure of the right. It's only the the complete moral capitulation of the right that resurrected kind of socialist elements within the left in the UK and the new left in the United States. It's it's the right's fault that the left has become as dominant as it is because the right has been so pathetic. And I think just, so now sort of we're moving away from Rand's own view. She died in the early eighties to thinking what's happened since then and to the present, but just sort of her warning that this is going to destroy the right. I think just in terms of presidential candidates, if you go from Reagan to Bush senior to Bush Jr. to got Bob Dole in the middle. Yeah, he doesn't win, but just of who, what, it's, you go down. It's, yep. it's a mm-hmm. straight downward path. Um, and this is what she thought, I think, was going to happen, given. And, and, and Bush, Bush was an empty candidate. He stood for nothing, compassionate conservatism. So he had internalized religion so much. It was so part of him. He was ultimately a born again. That it, it 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 he was he was feeble in even his attempts to 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 defend anything. I mean, I think we all longed by that point for Reagan, who at least could could give a speech and could articulate some of these ideas. 
Bush was a, a nothing, really an empty suit to a large extent. And you saw that at, at, in the great in the great time of, in two, he, he was challenged twice. I mean, he, he, there were two big challenges for the Bush. One was 9-11. And while most of the country for a while thought he did a good job, ultimately, I think history will evaluate him as a complete failure. And the second was the financial crisis, which I think in some respects, he did more damage than even with 9-11, where, where it was a complete, complete disaster. He was going to save capitalism by destroying, you know, by, by regulating and controlling it and, and, and destroying it. Um, and and it completely opened the door to what we're seeing today politically, in terms of the dominance of the of the far left in American politics. I think Obama would have could have never become president if not for uh, Bush's second term. I, and you know when we talk about strategic voting, I did vote. My first election, my first vote ever in the United States, because I became a citizen in two thousand three. I actually voted for John Kerry in 2004 because I was so disgusted with Bush's response primarily to 9-11. And now I kind of have this fantasy of what would have happened if John Kerry would have won. And put aside the Holy Rock thing, which I think would have been blamed on him and it would have played out differently. But think of if John Kerry was president during the financial crisis um, and it wouldn't have been so easily and straightforwardly blamed on the right and on capitalism and on Republicans and on, on everything like that, you would have never had Obama and you would have never had uh, Trump. So I am happier with my vote in 2004 than I was when I did it then looking back on, on kind of the scenarios of what if now, who knows what would have happened, but it, it, it at least seems like defeating Bush then would have saved us from a lot of trouble today. Um, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, Ayn Rand makes the point when she's discussing, she surprised a lot of people by coming out, uh, that she, claiming that she was uh, intending to vote for um, uh, Patrick Moynihan, the Democratic senator uh, from New York, against James Buckley, the conservative, religious yep. conservative. And one of the points she makes, she makes a lot of points, she, she raises the same principle about uh, his being anti-abortion and what that implies. But um, she also mentions that if Moynihan screws things up, and he, I mean, we would kill for a Democrat like Moynihan, I think that is, uh, if he screwed things up, it embarrasses the left, it embarrasses them. If Buckley uh, screws things up, it, it's, it's us. It's because we're tainted with their brush because these are allies. And in, in some sense, uh, uh, clearly, um, there are people on the right who've been allies, uh, at least in the realm of, of economics and, and political philosophy. And uh, that's something important to keep in mind. And I think it's what, um, well, Trump isn't doing us any favors as far as reputation uh, is concerned. Uh, that's for sure. The reputation of whatever you, you could consider the right. Yeah, and and and, and uh, you know there was arguments to be made about about not voting for suddenly not voting for Bush Senior, uh, you know after after Reagan because again he was such milk toast and he stood for nothing. And didn't Rand also say, look that and, and and I think that both parties basically stand for nothing. That is that they have no identity in a sense that, that it's just a a mishmash of of. Uh, uh, you know, various forms of pragmatism with leaning in different directions. And, and you know, the, the pragmatists have dominated these, these political parties. That It's been a long time since there were any principles in either one. 
and until the Democratic Party comes, goes all socialist, and then there'll be some principles. She made a very fascinating um, philosophical dissection of the left and the right uh, in seven. I think it was seventy mid seventy seventy five, perhaps uh, uh, censorship local and express. I, I think that's where she makes that distinction, where she says um, the left and the right uh, both advocate advocate the. And I think this is an interesting thing to bring up to see to, to what extent they're both changing. The left and the right, um, they both accept the mind-body or soul-body dichotomy, and they each grant freedom to that side of the dichotomy that they don't value. So the left, they're mystics of muscle. Uh, they want to regulate the economy, regulate the, the material world, and your free your academic freedom and free speech and, and all that stuff. Um, and the conservatives are mystics of the spirit. Uh, they want to leave you free uh, in the, you know, in the marketplace, but they want to control, you know, no pornography, uh, what you do with your body, uh, abortion and things like that. And what's interesting to me is I think that was a brilliant description of, of she said, you know, there's this apparent um, contradiction. The left claims to be pro-freedom in this area, but not that and, and vice versa. But there is no soul body dichotomy. Uh, there isn't, um, you can't keep them separate like that. And I think what you see is both the left and the right are getting worse in the area that they used to be. Uh, I mean, the left Adoring. is worse than the right, uh, in, in, certainly in academia where, where I reside, uh, on the issue of, of freedom of expression. The left is, is, is really bad. and They're awful. And the right, who's the defending laissez-faire capitalism? No one. And they've come together. The perfect example of that, I think, is the media, uh, the social media, the, the, what the left and the right, what the Republicans and the Democrats did to um, uh, Facebook, Facebook, Amazon, etc. cetera. Um, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, when they had them, you know, kind of, they were grilling them. Uh, it's descended uh, something uh, uh, terrible. And I think, again, She's long regarded, she's had these serious criticisms of the right as well as the left. Uh, and, and no, you're absolutely right in terms of the mind-body dichotomy because it doesn't exist. They can't sustain the separation and they also can't sustain, you know, mixtures don't sustain, right? They, they either go towards more authoritarianism or towards more freedom. And both political parties have gone towards more authoritarianism. And that is now reflected across the board and every issue. The response from both political parties is more authoritarian. And if you think of that dynamic, I mean, part of her analysis, I think, was they want to control the realm that they think of as metaphysically significant. But their major premise is, I want to control Yep. And all, yeah, you can have freedom in this realm that doesn't matter. And to say there's no mind-body dichotomy is part of that is to say, or no soul-body dichotomy, she sometimes puts it like that too, to say that there's no dichotomy is that if you want to control this realm, you have yep. to control the other realm too. And if you were pro-freedom, it would be, oh, really? But I want freedom of speech. And so, so maybe I should drop the controlling part. But if what's driving you is I want to control, then it's if the I mean take it on the side of the Democrats against social media. It's I want to control money, economic power, and if that means oh well, then I've got to violate freedom of speech and not 
I'm going to do that because what's driving me is I want to control this. And same the other direction, that if you take a Ted Cruz and I want to control the spiritual and put religion back in. And, they, and if that means treating businessmen like, well, maybe they don't have freedom and maybe they're the enemy. Yeah, okay, because I want to control this. And if that's if what's driving you is the control, then it's when the contradiction becomes apparent, you're going to resolve it in a certain way. And I think part of what we're seeing is, yeah, they resolve it. Yeah, I guess we have to control everything. Um, uh, Let's talk, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about in regard to, so the the present situation and Republicans, Democrats, we've talked a little bit about right and left. I no longer think in those terms um, because I don't think the right, particularly the right, designates anything and it's not clear to anybody even what I'm talking about and and if it means religiosity and so on has nothing to do with freedom or capitalism uh but I want to talk a little bit and this relates to the issue of abortion and I think the, the way that I interpret Rand's view on this and that's the nihilism so there's a kind of view that there's only nihilism on the left as it would be put, like, as I said, I don't think about this, but even if you put it as like, there's nihilism in the Democratic Party, but not in the Republican Party. My interpretation of part of her view of abortion and why she viewed this as such a significant issue is that she sees it as in motivation, an expression of nihilism. That is, nobody gains from restricting abortion. And that's one of the ways she put it, if I can find quickly the quote um, that she, because this is part of when she, I mean, she talked a number of times about Reagan and in one of them, this is, this is the way she put it after talking about that if he opposes abortion, he can't be on the side of individual rights. But then I think it's a deeper point she's making. This is what she writes. This is in, uh, I think 75 or 76, it's late 75 or early 1976. Quote, not every wrong idea is an indication of a fundamental philosophical evil in a person's convictions. The anti-abortion stand is such an indication. There is no room for an error of knowledge in this issue and no venal excuse. The anti-abortion stand is horrifying because it is non-venal because no one has anything to gain from it, and therefore its motive is pure ill will toward mankind. Uh, Close quote. And I think the pure ill will towards mankind is, that's an expression of nihilism. And I think she, so she did not think of, she certainly thought there's nihilism on the new left, but I don't think she thought of nihilism as restricted to it's only the new left. And I don't view it as in the present that it's only um, sort of the, the, the current representatives of the new left, left that there's nihilism there, that there, I think that nihilism, unfortunately, is more widespread in terms of motivation than that. But I'm interested in what you guys think about that. Well, I definitely think it comes up in the abortion debate. I, I see it as, as, you know, I, I, did a, I did a show and abortion came up and we were talking about abortion and, and what, the comments on the chat very quickly went to, well, if people have, uh, you know, the, the consequences to sex, 
And, uh, you know, uh, life, life is not, shouldn't be easy. And it's not easy. It's this almost Jordan Peterson, like life needs to, you know, you, you, you need to be responsible because life sucks and you need to suck it up. And if you have sex, you get, and it's almost like this anti-pleasure, anti-sex attitude, which I think animates a lot of people in the right. I think there's, there's a, it animates Christianity. So it's not surprising that would animate people on the right says definitely this resentment of this gives people more sexual freedom. Abortion gives people the ability to have an abortion, gives people more sexual freedom. And we want to destroy that. We want to do away with that. It gives women more control over their lives, more control over their careers, more control over their sex, more control over their activities. And people resent that and, and want particularly men and they want to shut it down. So I definitely think the, the, the nihilism comes across on, in the abortion debate very quickly when you push people. You know, there's only so much you can you can argue about, uh, you know, clump of cells versus third trimester and stuff. When you really push them, it goes all the way back to conception. It goes all the way back to, to, to this attitude towards sex. And then you see it, you see it everywhere. I mean, the, particularly today. And I think, I think what characterizes Trump at the, the Trump and his supporters, his rabid supporters, towards economic issues. There's a real nihilism there, or real lose-lose uh, uh, kind of attitudes. It's like you know, you, you why tariffs on Canadian steel or Canadian aluminum or whatever? Uh, so what if people lose their jobs? We we have to have America, or whatever. It, it's 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 a real uncaring attitude towards prosperity, towards economic growth, towards economic success, towards many of Americans' quality and standard of living. When I say stuff like Walmart and, and whatever you think of China, it has raised the standard of living in Americans. All you care about is those material, you know, all you care about is, no, standard of living is really, really important. It's about a part of life. So there's definitely this flippant attitude towards the real consequence of actions to individual lives. They don't care about it. They, they, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, sorry. And it's um, there's a deeper issue here, of course, uh, um, that it's not just the abortion issue. If you talk about religion yeah. and her view of religion and and you again, I've encountered this recently where religion isn't as bad as X you know, on the left or uh, and nihilism. Ayn Rand, I mean, going back to We the Living, to her first entry in her philosophical journals, Religion is what places all value into a non-existent realm. And that's got to be a kind of nihilism. It's at least a nihilism as far as your life here on earth is concerned. And that's why, I mean, Kira puts it in those terms of, you know, I ask people if they believe in God, because if they say they believe in God, I know they don't believe in life. Well, <laughs> Nothing more nihilistic than that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's just the form since it's su such a structure, a hierarchy of beliefs, of values, of you know, they're definitely have a moral code. But that is um, a veneer that's become really, really uh, thin in the twenty first century. Um. One of the things that, so going back to the 2016 election, one of the things that I found most depressing about it was that I think the two candidates that got sort of enthusiastic, you might even say rabid support, 
were Sanders and Trump. And I think on both of them, there's a nihilism there that what really animates is what they're against and what they want to destroy, tear down. I want to get the Wall Street and the bankers for the Bernie Sanders kind of uh, and business. And the Trump, it was, uh, I want to, we're going to go after the immigrants. And, the, and it was, I mean, it, it's not like this was the first time there's negative campaigning in U.S. elections, but that the core of the message and what seemed to resonate was the negative, this is, like, I'm, I'm pointing out large swaths of the American electorate and saying they're evil, we're going to go after them. And there's, I mean, I think they function as scapegoats in this, but that it, that these, this is what gets real support, not, oh my God, we have to pick between two candidates who are nihilist. It's both sides are supporting the, what I think of as it's a tearing down of real values. And to me, that was the, it was the first, and I think, I mean, it's extended into the present, um, that the, what animates the Democrat, I agree, I don't think Biden is a nihilist, but I think he's a, the, I mean, my interpretation of his victory is we can't run the candidate that we want to run now. He's might not even run for re, if he gets elected, might not even run for re-election. So he won't have two terms. It'll be one term. And he's a kind of stopgap that uh, of sort of the direction of the, that the parties, the parties animated by Sanders, Warren, uh, AOC, like that wing that that's really scapegoats. Um, so to me that there's a growing nihilism that uh, is the most frightening thing that I find in the, in the sort of, the, the, the two parties. Well, there's a growing nihilism yeah. and there's a growing authoritarianism. And everything you said about the campaign in, in 2016 fits the authoritarian label as well. I mean, it, typically the way authoritarians run is things are awful. It's not your fault. It's the fault of the other. And I'm the guy who can fix it. And, uh, uh, in, in, and just take Sanders and Trump and they both ran exactly that. They just blamed it. Everything's bad. They had exactly the same examples. Then who they blamed for were different. And then, you know, Trump, I can fix it. Sanders, uh, democratic socialism can fix it. Socialism can fix it. You know, they, but, but it, you know, it's not even real socialism. What he was talking about was not, it's, it's, it's also he can fix it. And, and that is the kind of authoritarianism that dominates today both political parties. And it's, it's like most authoritarianism. It's not about a positive message. It's all about a negative message. It's all about we have to, you know, shut these people out. We have to kick these people out. We have to stop these people. The whole campaign is is uh, is all about uh, negativity. And I agree with you on the Democratic Party to some extent. I do think that if they know that if they nominated somebody like AOC, they couldn't win. So people who vote Democratic are not way out there on the left. They're not the nihilists. But the committed Democrats are nihilists. So they have to have a Biden who's basically just a pragmatist. He's a centrist. He stands for nothing. But he, he, is, at le- he, he, he is electable in the sense that the American people was. I still believe that McGovern would lose today, right? I still think that the country would not 
accept socialism. But what I think Trump's election has proven, and, and this is why Sanders was never elected, what I think, uh, what, what Trump's election proved is they will accept that authoritarian mindset. They will accept the control. They will accept the kind of uh, mindlessness and nihilism from the right, even if they won't accept it from the left. And that's what scares me about Trump and the whole Trump phenomena is that people will, people buy into it and people embrace it and, and accept it. There's a difference in the nihilism in the sense that Sanders does have an ideology and Trump doesn't have any, he has no ideas. I don't even think he's a racist. I think he's in the sense that he holds ideas that you could count as, I think he's happy to push those buttons if it'll help him get elected or say the opposite. But um, I think the, there will be a socialist candidate eventually um, if we don't get some serious opposition and partly because of the universities. Uh, the ideas are so bad. And there is no there is no representative of Trump or any kind of ideas of that sort um, that are being teaching in humanities departments. Or, um, and, but I don't. Uh, so I'm not comfortable about Biden. I think I agree. He, I think he's this placeholder. And um, I'm going to agree uh, for the first time in my life with Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky has endorsed Biden. And he says um, this is a salon interview. Your support for Biden is more than merely grudging. You actually seem to think that the platform is surprisingly good, given who he is and given where we are. And Chomsky agrees with that and adds, this is not support for Biden. It's support for the activists who have been at work constantly, blah, blah, blah. And then he talks about Sanders. And he said, if you'd asked me 10 years ago whether someone like Bernie Sanders could be the most popular political figure in the country, I would have said you're out of your mind. But in fact, it happened in 2016. And, you know, in effect, we have to run with it. And if you look at his, what are these called? These unity task force uh, forces that Biden, because the Democratic Party wanted to show unity to, between Biden and Sanders. Every one of the six of them, um, uh, immigration and climate change and employment, whatever it is. And they all have a Biden person, like AOC, I think, was given the, 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 the Sanders uh, person. I, I don't regard this is where I would disagree with some objectivists who I, I, I respect deeply. Um, I don't think this, I don't think Biden represents a a kind of Democrat that's a particular you know set of views that is in opposition to um, Sanders, and that's why I think uh, it, it's a it's a disaster. Now I'm not agreeing with the people who claim that the left the the, the, the Democrats are all just one thing socialist. I don't think that's the case either, but from the perspective of would I be willing to vote for Biden as a as a lesser of two evils? That's why um, I would say no. I think he's. I don't think there's anything positive there. Um, I think not being Trump isn't enough, and not being Trump or Sanders isn't uh, enough for me. Let's talk a little bit. We'll turn to questions in a moment, but let's as a maybe as a last point before we turn to questions. The, so we've talked longer term about the destruction of the Republican Party, and particularly from McGovern, and there's a swing to the right, and you get Reagan and then a disintegration of it. Uh, but as we talked about, Rand thought this is what exactly what Reagan's going to do. The what do you think Trump's 
impact is on the Republican Party. And I'll just preface it a little bit. In terms of, I don't think, I think part of the tragedy in the country is that because we have a bankruptcy, I think in both parties, you're, you're, it's getting filled more and more by nihilism. Mm-hmm. And that, so I, part of another aspect that I found depressing of the Hillary Trump election is I thought the only chance Hillary has is if they run Trump against her. And the only chance that Trump has is if he's running against Hillary. Like if he ran against Obama, Obama would have destroyed him, I think. And so like these are the two candidates that emerge from each party. They're so bad and they can only win because the other party is so bad. And that, that, like, that's part of the dynamic of the parties now. This is who they're pushing for. And if you remember Trump, there was a lot of opposition in the Republicans against him until he got the yeah. nomination. And then it's, oh, I guess we have to support this. And, and, and I think it's, it's worse than that because there was, there was some opposition to Trump even after he got elected. And there were some senators who for a while stood up against him and thought the particular, and that is gone. That is, uh, the senators are now lockstep behind him. The, the, the ones who opposed him really have retired the same in the House of Representatives, the so-called Freedom Caucus of the House, which used to be decent in terms of economic policy, is now 100% lockstep behind Trump. I mean, I think the impact that Trump has had on the Republican Party is profound. I think the party mm-hmm. is, in with it, it's stunning how within four years it has changed. But more than that, I think Trump has had a profound impact on the on the intellectuals of the right and and Maybe I should say something about what I mean by right-left because I still use the terms, but differently than the way I may use them. Um, I still use them as as differentiating two types of collectivists: collectivists that are dominated by by socialism and collectivists that are more uh, more fascist. Now, fascism is a so that two distinct forms of collectivism in politics. Uh, I think collectivism of the left and collectivism of the right, and I think of individualism as the as as us as as being completely distinct from them, and the better people somewhere closer to us, away from both left and right. But it's hard to visualize that. But left and right, that's how people think, and it differentiates these groups. But the intellectuals of the right. So up until about two years ago, there was no such thing as a nationalist conservative movement. They are now think tanks that are dedicated to, um, you know, conservatives' ways in which they can use the state to impose their moral agenda on the populace. I mean, think tanks that are dedicated to this. There is a legal scholar, a major legal scholar within the conservative movement that rejects originalism and textualism and believes that that, that all judges should interpret the Constitution based on the principle of the common good. And he is of the right, not of the left. And and he's celebrated on the right. I don't think that would have necessarily happened without Trump. So I think there's been a complete shift in the way people on the right think towards um, more nationalism, towards actually more uh, taking religion even se- more seriously as they, they, the Catholics and particularly among the Catholics more intellectually and, and towards more things like industrial policy. You see it. I mean, the, the character that really shows this is Tucker Carlson, 
who used to be supposedly a libertarian. He used to wear the bow, the Roth body and bow tie and everything, and has shifted over time to where when, when Elizabeth Warren came out with the economic plan, Tucker Carlson said, yeah, it's kind of a Trump, it's a Trump economic plan. There's very little difference between Elizabeth Warren's economic plan and Trump's. And I actually endorsed this. This is pretty good. I hate her on other things, but on this, I agree with her. And that, that shift is, is that dramatic shift has happened within the Republican Party in four years, I find astounding. And it shows the depth of the damage that Trump has done to the Republican Party, has done to the cause of freedom. And I think that is one reason that I do think one could go back and say, I wish Hillary had won in some, you know, as much as I hate Hillary and despise Hillary and disagree with Hillary and everything. Uh, I don't think the Republican Party would have been devastated and and restructured and reimagined the way it has been. And it's one of these missed opportunities that Ayn Rand herself talked about at various, I mean, she thought Wendell, Wendell Wilkie had a real opportunity to oppose the New Deal and then compromise. And it happened with uh, the 52 uh, election or, or um, uh, the nomination uh, and with Goldwater, as we've seen. And here, I, this was my one hope that night uh, when Trump uh, when when Trump won was that the the Republicans would wake up and what the f just happened, and then regroup. And they and I was very hope I was I thought George Will was excellent in this unrelenting criticism. He has the best descriptions of Trump. I thought this would really make a move, and there's nothing. Um, at least I, I don't. Well, George Will is being marginalized. What's that? George Will is being completely marginalized within the so-called right. conservative movement, and all the never Trumpers are completely irrelevant right now. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's exactly, exactly right. There was an opportunity there for them to assert themselves and to steer whatever they, because Trump is an empty, sh- you know, is, is a complete pragmatist. They could have maybe steered him in a better direction, but no, they got most of them got captured by Trump. And that's a feature of tribalism, I think, this belonging to a group. And if you see the hypocrisy with, with Mitch McConnell on you know, the, the flip-flopping on with regard to it, if you, I mean, hypocrisy is never just a thing in itself. It's based on something deeper. And what it's based on here is, well, this is my group. Yep. And that's our group choosing the Supreme. Um, the rise of tribalism and its connection to all of this. But, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, good. We're at the, uh, actually a little past the 90 minutes. So let's turn to some questions. And if, if you're watching us live, you, there's three ways you can, or little four, I guess, ways you can ask questions. So in Zoom, you can use the Q&A module, and some people have. Um, you can use the chat, and a lot of people are using that as well. On YouTube, we have the chat, and there's the super chat as well. And Corey, thank you for the Donation that's really appreciated, and I guess you're streaming it on your channel. You're on, right? So you I've might... got a quick super chat question here okay. that's relevant to what we just talked about, and then I have one from Zoom as well, relevant to just the last one. Yeah, if there if there is nihilism of the left and right, what is the source of each respective form of nihilism? Does nihilism and authoritarianism go hand in hand? So I think we talked about the fact that the nihilism of the right, the source of religion, right, primarily. And the nihilism of the left, is, is it the failure of socialism? Is it, is it the inevitable kind of collapse of any kind of Marxist attempt to manifest in reality? 
Or is socialism in of itself already nihilism? Well, I think that they lost their pretense that they could actually achieve the flourishing and production of capitalism, and yet it can be properly distributed. That was destroyed. And that's why um, environmentalism is the perfect, uh, it was the savior of the left, because you can now be Eugene Lawson, where um, it's good that people don't have as many cars as they did. It, it, it's We don't want the people in the third world, in, in, in uh, Asia, particularly, uh, let's say, or, or some, um, uh, Sub-Sahara Africa. We don't want them to become flourishing capitalistic cultures like you know, China managed to do in some of its regions. That's a disaster. Uh, and I think um, it's nihilism and, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's failed. I mean, now Ayn Rand attributed to the, uh, I think the end of World War II, right? By then she thought, you know, even the pretense of collectivism was gone. I, um, I mean, they certainly, the intellectuals continued to present those views. <laughs> and there's, I forget exactly what the question, how it was phrased, but there's a difference between thinking of the expression of nihilism and its deepest roots. If you want to get its deepest roots, the, Ayn Rand has an essay, The Age of Envy, mm-hmm. where she talks about how a mentality comes about that its orientation to values is not this is something to go after, to seek, but this is something to destroy, to wipe out, and how that can develop versus what movements and so on give it expression. And I think the what, Robert, you were bringing up about the new left, it's, yeah, they're faced with a contradiction. The old left was, like, we've got this program that's supposedly scientific, rational, leads to progress, and in practice, what it leads to is bloodshed everywhere. And then it's, do you rethink your views or do you pick up other views that enable you to go after the same goal? In her view, the new left is sheds all this pretense that it's rational, it's scientific. And I mean, in the environmentalism, it's, oh, yeah, you're better off to go without things. You're better, poverty's good. And, it, and it's the embrace of the destruction that that's really motivated him. And I think when she talks about religion, and particularly as it comes into the Republican Party with Reagan and so on, it's she thinks of it as it's a wiping out. I mean, one of the ones she talks about is creation, creationism and the elevating of arbitrary emotional pronouncements. God created the thing in seven days as this is the equivalent of, of science, and we want this taught along science. And that all that is is the destruction and tearing down of science. Nobody can actually think that there's any argument, any evidence here, but we want this view on par. And I think she thought of that as this is a wiping out. Um, and so the it, it's in a lot of movements, you can have people who what actually attracts them to it is the wiping out of things. And she talks about it. It's like, it's not the moral majority didn't bring creationism. It was, this has been a kind of view in American history. It, you see it with the Scopes trial. And, but they're in the backwaters. They don't have any significant. What gives them significance is a complete bankruptcy and then inviting them in to the party. And then it's, it's you're inviting in the nihilist, but they can exist in all kinds of movements. And they do, I think. And that age of envy is very interesting 
from the deeper perspective of this. Um, okay, let's take, here's something from Zoom. It related to one of the last issues. I think this, this question relates to one of the last issues we were talking about. And it also relates to her view of Reagan. And it, uh, I, it's not, the question isn't put exactly like this, but I'll put it like this. It's about thinking about the short term and the long term. So that if you're, and if thinking of this election, Biden, Trump, Democrats, Republicans won't, in the short term, won't a Biden presidency, so here's the question, give us Obamacare, then universal health care will get steps towards the Green New Deal. Meanwhile, the, the question is, Trump has done much good, but even if you thought, well, he hasn't done good, is it going to, in the short term, is it going to be as bad? Um, so th that's the question in terms of thinking and thinking about how to vote. I would put the wider thing is thinking about the short term and the long term. I mean, I think so. First, I think a lot of people in trying to defend voting for Trump present a Biden victory as kind of an end of the world. It's an end of America. We, we adopt socialism instantaneously. Right. And in the short run, it is such a disaster that there's no recovering in the long run. And I think that I just think that's false. I, I, I think while a lot of bad will be done if Biden gets elected, there's no question of that. I think a lot of bad is being done by Trump. And if he wins a second term, I think that the bad to the country long term is 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 dramatic and significant. And I'm not sure we can recover from it. On the other hand, if Biden wins, I think, yeah, he'll pass some bad stuff, particularly if he has the Senate. Uh, you know, I've 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 urged people if they're going to vote for Biden to vote Republican in the Senate to try to have if we have 51 senators in the Senate, at least you won't get the worst of the or at least the Green New Deal will be a little smaller. It won't be quite as big. You've urged people on your show. I've urged people on my show, not as part of the Iron Man Institute, because I don't as, as that I don't urge anybody to do anything. Um, but anything uh, with regard to uh, uh, voting. But. Um, it's the case that the American system of government is built so that things happen slowly. If you think about Obama, he had two years where he was president, he had the Senate, and he had the House. And he barely got Obamacare through. I mean, it was, it was uh, a, a kind of, he had to do some kind of legislative trick to get it through uh, at the last minute. It's very difficult to do dramatic changes. Uh, even if you control all the, 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 all the different branches of government. The, the senators on the Democratic side are not all on AOC's side. There are many senators who come from red states who, if they, if they vote on the most nutty of the, of, the, of the left's agenda, will lose their senatorial races in the future. So there were a lot of... It, it's wrong to think of these kind of things as... We'll take the worst of the Democrats and assume that no matter what Democrat gets elected, those things will be implemented. It's, and, and the fact is that through legislation, it is very difficult to change the country quickly. Long term, long term, it would be terrible if Biden won and then um, 
Carmella or, or AOC or whoever won after that, and you have a string moving towards socialism, that would be terrible. The only hope I think we have politically to buy us time is if Biden wins, then the Republicans take a House and Senate in two years, and then maybe they win the presidency in four. And uh, and maybe it's a better Republican than, than Trump who wins then. I, I just... There's no good outcome where Biden, Biden-like win in the long run, and there's no good outcome if Republicans li- win it all out, all out in the long run. Unfortunately, in the world in which we live, um, I want to reject the idea that Trump has done good things. Well, so we had another question like that. So just to acknowledge, so someone asked exactly: Do you think Trump has done anything of benefit economically, internationally, trade agreements, tariffs? I don't think so. And um, I regard Trump's actions, if you understand the objectivist view of the arbitrary, that an arbitrary statement is neither true nor false. It has no basis in reality. I think the same way, and not merely as an analogy, of of Trump's um, so-called the things he's done that are good, that is just as an arbitrary statement might be in the, you know, uttered by someone else who has a cognitive, you know, right to, to make certain utterances, it could be true or, or perhaps false. Um, the, the good things he does, um, they're neither good or bad, they're beyond evaluation because they're coming from someone who is utterly, in my view, divorced from reality, his statements are. Uh, so the only evaluation I can make is that they're embarrassing that they're bad for us. These could be the same actions if they had been presented by even someone who was just, meh, president, you could cheer them. I mean, moving the Israeli capital to Jerusalem, pulling us out of the Paris Climate Accord, going to California and saying, uh, I mean, if you're someone who actually read books and you know, had the science behind you, saying that these fires were more the result of, uh, of, of forestry management than they were of climate change. Instead, what are they? They're the actions or utterances of the guy who loves Kim Jong-un, or whatever his name, right? The, 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 and a zillion other um, bizarre, uh, arbitrary statements. So it's all just... It, it's embarrassing. And um, that happened when he pulled out a Paris Accord. I thought people are going to take this as a ridiculous joke. Now, you know, if he wins the election in four years, every single thing he does is good and has good consequences. I'll revisit uh, my opinion. But right now, I don't think uh, it, he can do good. And, now, and, and by contrast, take someone like Reagan, who said some pretty negative things about him. when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, I cheered. When he referred to the Soviet Union as the focus of evil in the world, yes, because as bad as he was, he was not a, um, I don't know, what can I say that's polite about a president, a whim-worshipping psychopath? I'll make it modern. Uh, That's how I view I think he's just I I think the guy who who ghost wrote the the book um, the, the art of the deal said that he was a, a sociopath who never read book, you know, who never read a book or something. I believe it. Uh, he just, it, I mean, he's, com- he's a complete irrationalist. And so anything good he does is associated with the irrationalism. And therefore it, it, it is completely empty and, and becomes meaningless. And indeed 
any other president would immediately reverse them. And they're all easily reversible. Maybe the embassy to Jerusalem will not be, but almost everything else is easily and will be, uh, will be reversed. And serious people can't take what he says, say seriously. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with that completely. But the fact is that even if you draw, I don't know, do lists, people love doing these lists, check how many good things he did and how many bad things he did. The bad is in more significant areas. It's more substantial. It's more significant. The good stuff are relatively small things that are fleeting and that don't have much substance behind them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll just give you one example, but this is an example that is true of every Republican, but it's something people get caught up with. And I get hear this all the time. He cut taxes. I hear this all the time. And of course, every Republican except George Bush Sr. cut taxes. But if you cut taxes and don't cut spending, you're actually increasing taxes. It, it's meaningless. The fact that you cut taxes is actually meaningless to the actual standard of living and quality of life of Americans. It's actually harmful to them if you continue to spend like a maniac. So you can view it as a positive, but not if you dig a little deeper. Immediately, it's a negative when you associate it with the broader context. Um, so let me see if you agree with this sort of summary that and it, go back to the way Ayn Rand thought about Reagan, that if you tie the advocacy of, and again, supposedly, like how much he was actually advocating capitalism, freedom, individual rights, but he certainly was held as somehow being on the side of that. If you tie that to the religion, then you're you're giving you're discrediting the position because you're suggesting that oh well if you're going to be scientific and rational you would reach a different conclusion you have to divorce yourself and have faith and base it in religion it's a step even lower to say i don't need any basis for anything i say or do i don't even need the semblance of an argument appeal to the bible or to tradition uh, or to christianity and if, the, if you're going to discredit a position, you can't get any lower than, yeah, I've got no arguments. I've got no evidence. It's just, I mean, Robert, you put it as, well, it's whim. So it's just, if you, if you say, like, this is what backs my position, then anyone who thinks of themselves as semi-reasonable, semi-scientific thinks, okay, well, so it, if that's what your base, you have to do something different than this, because this is just whim. Yeah, I mean, he, everything he does is, is because of that. It's, it, it's full of contradictions, and there's no way for anybody innocent to get anything positive out of it. So I love uh, the brutal dictator of North Korea and Bibi Netanyahu and Israel, right? What do you do with that? There's, there's nothing. Is Bibi as bad as the guy in North Korea? Uh, is, is the guy in North Korea as good as BB? Uh, you know, and I'm a big BB critic, but in comparison, he's a saint as compared to the guy in North Korea. Or I, I believe in deregulating uh, massive industries, but I'm going to call up CEOs and tell them they can't fire their employees, and I'm going to I'm going to denounce them when they when they make business decisions. Okay, what are you for? Freedom or anti-freedom? For controls or anti-controls? It, it it's completely unintelligible, and the idea that the better things, moving the embassy, deregulating, is associated with that, with all the negative things, destroys the goodness in the good actions that he's done. 
Okay, let's shift a little bit. Here's a question going back to the abortion issue and related to the nihilism. So the the question is, I'll put it as a question, it's sort of a statement, but don't the people against abortion actually believe that the fetus is a baby and therefore they think the future baby gains a lot? So this is on the issue of, is it nihilism or is it, no, they're actually thinking there's something there that gains. So I think you could make that argument about abortion in the, in the, in the third trimester. And, and I think the, the, the argument about abortion in the third trimester is wrong. The, the anti-abortion is wrong, but it's at least there's a semblance of truth. But in the first trimester, it is, a, as I think Lana Peacock described it, as a clump of cells. Right? It's, it's, not, it's a potential under very strict circumstances to become a human being, but it's just a potential. And you can't mistake this clump of cells for a human being. It's not a human being. So, no, I don't think that they're trying to preserve, you know, uh, human beings and it's a positive in that circumstances. Um, And yet most people who don't believe abortion should be legal in the third trimester also don't think they should be legal in the first trimester. And as a consequence, you have to paint them with that. You have to take them seriously on the first trimester issue. And, and, and yes, they're, they're anti the mother's life, they're anti-sex, they're anti, they're, anti, they're anti-individual rights, they're anti-life. And Iron has a portrait of what happens when religionists, if they have their view of, of abortion and, and birth control too, but I think she'd apply it in this case. It's not just, well, we have a baby here and some inconvenience over here, isn't it the right of the baby? She, what would it do to the life of the person, not just their sex life, but if they get pregnant because birth control isn't? And she has this, I think, oh, it's in uh, Humane Vitae, right, where she talks about imagine uh, um, what what kind well, of life this person yeah, would have. Yeah, her criticism of. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, yeah. criticism of it, yeah, but, but <laughs> she's compassionately saying, let's look at what really happens in reality. And um, you have a real human being here, a young person, either they made a mistake or um, something momentarily stupid or the birth control didn't work or whatever. Um, Certainly, if you're following the Catholic Church and you use the rhythm method, that's the least effect, whatever, Um, versus a potential. It's not an actual entity yet with with rights or values. Now, um, I think she would claim. And this actually came up in the nonfiction writing course in, in some discussion. I don't think it made it into the book. But um, you can imagine someone who's very young and they not very intelligent, haven't given a lot of thought. They might make a mistake of this kind and think that, yeah, there's you're destroying it. But no one who really gives it any thought could actually think it's the, ba- it's the value of a baby. Um, it's a real human life versus, uh, as I've heard it put, an inconvenience. Um, and I think she she thinks it's so crystal clear that, um, I mean, there, I've just killed 100,000 cells, right? That, those are human cells that you clone them, or some of them anyway. Uh, it, you can't take seriously, particularly these people who are against you know, the morning after pill and, and things of that sort. There's something going on here, and it's, they're anti-sex, anti-value, anti-the idea of a woman going out and having a career and 
and, and choosing whether to have children and when and, and et cetera. Um, that's what she's seeing. And that's, that's nihilism. Um, so I think it's possible that people make mistakes on this issue, particularly. Um, and she even addresses that. For any of you who've made the mistake of thinking that this is, et cetera, uh, right, in, 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 I guess, the age of mediocrity, is it? Yeah, and more broadly, to say that some, the crusading advocacy for some position is nihilistic, to say everybody who is seems to be on that side or thinks of them on, on that side. It's not, they're all nihilist. And this is your example of it. Like a young person might be confused and hasn't thought it. That's different than someone who crusades against yeah. abortion and wants to make it illegal and abortions murder. And that um, and that that's when you get to the nihilism that, that this is, you're making this a crusading issue in your life. Um, let's take a last, uh, it might not be that easy to do quickly, but again, we've got a super chat question. So, Navid, thank you for the um, contribution. It's about immigration. Um, and wouldn't, it's put as wouldn't Rand think that Trump's view of immigration makes sense because it's one of the biggest collectivist blocks in the US? So, it's the, uh, so I guess the question is to restrict. Uh, or and significantly restrict immigration is a way to battle collectivism. I know. Funnily enough, I just read a somebody sent me this survey of uh, of Latino voters, and um, I hope it's right because because it, it it actually shows that they they don't like to be called Latino voters. They they consider themselves individuals and uh, they have opinions as individuals, and uh, they they don't even want to be, they don't, don't think they should be taken for granted as Democrats or this or that. I, you know, this whole idea that, that, that it's a collectivistic block, uh, that immigrants, are, it's just not true. It's not true in any dimension. Uh, you know, let's assume it were true that Republicans were individualists and Democrats were collectivists, which is not true, right? I could argue whites are collectivists because they vote Republicans and Republicans are collectivists. So, I mean, it's, it, that way of thinking is just wrong. But the fact is Latinos vote across the whole agenda. Immigrants vote across the whole political spectrum. In Texas, they vote significantly Republican. They used to vote significantly Republican in California until Republicans became dramatically anti-immigration and anti-Hispanic, and they shifted their vote to the Democrats. Yeah, if Republicans compete on stage on who can be more anti-Latin, who can be more anti immigrants, then immigrants are not going to like Republicans. That's, that's a, that, that is a, a reality. But you can, you can be a critic of the existing immigration policies, which I am, and I think all of us are, with, but not think that the solution is a wall or not think that the solution is limiting immigration. So there is a bias in the immigration policies today towards uh, particular parts of the world. Um, there shouldn't be a bias. There should be just immigrants. And it's not, it, and I think if we had more open immigration, if we had more ability to come in, particularly if we had open immigration focused on people who can find jobs, then there would be immigrants from all over the world with all kinds of uh, ideas. And they would be coming in and you couldn't easily define them as any kind of block. And then finally, the idea that the government should get into the business of figuring out 
what immigrants think and then restricting them on based on what they think, what ideas they have, is one of the scariest ideas I can think of. You know, if, if Republicans say, we're not going to bring in uh, immigrants because they vote Democratic, and then Democrats say, we're not going to bring in immigrants because they vote something else. Just just imagine if that applies to immigrants, what then they could, now that they're in the business of ideas, what else they could now start discriminating against us based on. Um, so, so, no, I, I don't, I don't know what Ayn Rand's exact position would be on immigration today. And as you probably know, there's a wide array of points of view within, within objectivism about immigration. But I certainly don't think that that would capture it. And you're aware, I hope, or, or maybe not, that she was asked a question like this. And she said, um, she gave a reason, you know, someone had asked a question about immigration and taking jobs or something. Um, and she started out by saying, um, and I'm not going to try to convey the anger in her voice, that uh, you don't understand her conception, or she says to the speaker, I'm not talking to the one who asked the question here. Uh, she says, in effect, you don't understand my conception of egoism if you think, you know, you have the right to keep people from leaving the country uh, or entering the country because it, it affects you know, your ability to get a job, if that were even true. And then she adds, but aren't you dropping a huge co personal context? You know, she would have died in Russia at a young age had it not been for her ability to immigrate. Now, on one historical point, uh, Ayn Rand knew a lot about the nature of the um, CPUSA, the, the Communist Party of America, when she was working in, um, in Hollywood. Read, it was read, she knew that it was packed with immigrants. There were, I mean, the whole, the Socialist Workers Party, the, the Communist Party, there were a lot of European immigrants because, you know, they didn't like the, you know, whatever, and they came here. I don't think she once thought the solution was to keep those people out. And she was probably aware that there were German spies. Um, she certainly had strong views against the uh, incarceration of Japanese Americans, which was despicable. Uh, so I can't imagine, I'm not going to speak for her. I could imagine a certain context if we were at war with Iraq, should we, uh, what, you know, there might be certain kinds of immigrants that, they're, they're, I don't know, she never really discussed that. But she always saw this as an intellectual, an ideological, philosophical war, a battle. And you're not going to win it by, um, you know, passing laws that keep certain people out. And if there is a really dangerous principle, because, you know, Blacks tend to vote left. Why don't we stop that? And you, know, you could do that women, but it's just, um, and I don't know, do immigrants, when do immigrants get a right to vote? At what point? I mean, point they have to become right citizens. Yeah, illegal. Yeah, they, have to have, they have to become citizens. So I, I think this is one of those issues to go back to the beginning where I think if you feel strongly about this, you have to try to articulate in your mind then you know, I disagree with Ayn Rand on this particular um, issue. Um, I want to say one other thing on this, bring it back to some of what we talked about before. I think this is another instance of the Republican Party being destroyed and being destroyed by Trump that I think the best thing you could say about George Bush Jr., is I think he was actually pro-immigration and was trying to move the republic. We, we need to embrace 
immigrants who come here because they want to live the American dream and want to work and so on. We should try to embrace this. And our, our party is too, we don't like immigrants. And that too and has gone out the window now. It's the party of we're against immigrants. And what you said, you're on, there's no sh better way to drive people into groups of self-protection than to demonize them. Yep. If you demonize immigrants and then you complain, well, they're a block. And so they might be a block because there's strength in numbers when you're going after them and you're rapists and criminals and go home. And, so, and that the Republican in early 21st century was better on the issue of immigration. And, and it was, again, the Democrats are bad on this. Oh, yeah. I think there is a real element that the Democrats want immigrants because they think they vote Democrat, whether that's true or not. And the, but they see people as collectives and groups. And the Republicans could have embraced, no, we're more individual. We want immigrants from across the world if you're ready to work and so on. And it's, again, they failed in regard to that to have a better position. And it's, no, we're more, we're anti-immigrants. And then now you have a choice. Both sides on immigration are bad. And, and Reagan was excellent in immigration. Uh, I mean, his last speech was on immigration, and it's a fantastic speech. It it, 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 it's stunning how good it is. And that, and this is the thing. It's one thing for some people within the Republican Party and a certain wing of the Republican Party to be anti-immigration. But what Trump has done is he has emptied the Republican Party from anybody who's pro-immigration. So all the pro-immigration voices are gone. They're silence. And this is the sense in which I think he's transformed the Republican Party in ways that if I think he wins again, it, it will not be able to recover. And I think that would be that that is, you know, that that is a tragedy, not because I love the Republican Party, but because you need some opposition to the left. Even if it's weak opposition, you need something to buy time for the better elements in society to give the world a real alternative. Okay, we're over time by five minutes, so I should bring this to an end. Thanks, sure, everybody. A million for, questions. Yeah, we have a ton of questions. Um, so thanks for all the questions. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them. And thanks again for the contributions through Super Chat. We really appreciate that. Um, I hope you found this interesting, at least. And I know we got at least some of the questions, not all of them. But thanks for joining. And thanks, Robert, you're on for uh, all your contributions. This, this was really good. Thank you. Bye, guys. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.